Book 7, Chapters 72 to 90 of Commentaries on the Gallic War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ted Garvin. Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar. Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes. Book 7, Chapter 72. Being informed of what had passed by deserters and prisoners, Caesar planned defensive works of the following kind. Constructing a trench twenty feet wide with vertical sides, the width at the bottom being exactly equal to the distance between its upper edges, he traced out all the remaining works eight hundred paces behind it, his object being, as he was obliged to cover such a vast extent of ground and it was not easy to man the whole system of works with an unbroken ring of troops, to prevent the enemy from swooping down unexpectedly upon the lines in force at night, or in the daytime discharging missiles at the men while they were at work. Leaving this interval, he dug two trenches of equal depth, each fifteen feet wide, and filled the inner one, where it crossed the plain and the low ground, with water drawn from the stream. Behind the trenches he constructed a rampart and palisade twelve feet high, which he strengthened by an embattled breastwork with large forked branches projecting along the line where the breastwork joined the rampart, to check the ascent of the enemy, and erected towers on the entire circuit of the works at intervals of eighty feet. Chapter 73 While these vast fortifications were being constructed, it was necessary to fetch timber and corn, and the troops, having to move considerable distances from camp, were unavoidably weakened. Sometimes, indeed, the Gauls attempted to storm our works and made furious sallies from the town by several gates. Caesar therefore thought it necessary to strengthen the works still further in order to render the lines defensible by a smaller force. Accordingly, trees or very stout branches were cut down and their ends stripped of their bark and sharpened to a point. Continuous trenches were then dug, five feet deep, in which the logs were planted and fastened down at the bottom to prevent their being dragged out, while the bowels projected above. There were five rows in each trench, connected with one another and interlaced, and all who stepped in would impale themselves on the sharp stakes. The men called them gravestones. In front of them, arranged in slanting rows in the form of a quincux, pits were dug, three feet deep, which tapered gradually toward the bottom. Smooth logs as thick as a man's thigh, sharpened at the top and hardened by fire, were planted in them, projecting not more than four fingers above the ground. At the same time, the earth was trampled down to the depth of one foot above the bottom, to keep them firmly in position, while the rest of the pit was covered with twigs and brushwood to hide the trap. There were eight rows of this kind, three feet apart. The men called them lilies, from their resemblance to that flower. In front of them, blocks of wood, a foot long, with barbed iron spikes let into them, were completely buried in the earth and scattered about in all directions at moderate intervals. The men called them spurs. Chapter 74 When these defenses were completed, Caesar constructed, along the most suitable tracks which the lie of the country enabled him to follow, embracing a circuit of fourteen miles, corresponding works of the same kind, facing the opposite way, to repel the enemy from without, so as to prevent the troops who defended the lines from being hemmed in by any force, however numerous, 
and in order to avoid the danger of having to leave camp, he directed all the troops to provide themselves with fodder and corn for thirty days. Chapter 75 While this was going on at Elysia, the Gauls convened a council of their leading men, who decided not to adopt for Sinecurix's plan of assembling all who could bear arms, but to levy a definite contingent from each tribe, for they were afraid that with such a vast multitude crowding together, they would not be able to control their respective contingents, or keep them apart, or to organize any system for providing grain. The Edui, with their dependents, the Segusiavi, Ambivareti, and Alerki Branoviches, were ordered to find 35,000 men. The Averni, along with the Alutieri, Carducci, Gabali, and Velavi, who are habituated to their sway, the same number, the Sicani, Simones, Biterigis, Santoni, Rutini, and Carnutes, each 12,000, the Bellavaci, 10,000, and the Lemovices, the same, the Pictones, Turoni, Parisi, and Helvetti, each 8,000, the Andes, Ambiani, Mediomatrici, Petrocori, Nervi, Morini, and Nitiobroges, each 6,000, the Alerchi Kenomani, 5,000, and the Atrobats, the same. The Velocheces, 4,000. The Alerchi Eburoviches, 3,000. The Rarici and Boi, each 2,000. And all the maritime tribes conjointly, which the Gauls usually call Armorican, including the Coriosolites, Redones, Ambivari, Caletes, Osimi, Veneti, Lemovices, and Venelli, 30,000. The Velovaci did not furnish their proper contingent, saying that they would fight the Romans on their own account, just as they pleased, and not submit to the dictation of any one. However, at the request of Commius, and in consideration of their friendly relations with him, they sent 2,000 men along with the rest. Chapter 76 Caesar, as we have already mentioned, had found Commius a loyal and serviceable agent in former years in Britain, and in acknowledgment of these services, he had granted his tribe immunity from taxation, restored to it its rights and laws, and placed the Morini under his authority. Yet so intense was the unanimous determination of the entire Gallic people to establish their liberty and recover their ancient military renown, that no favors, no recollection of former friendship had any influence with them but all devoted their energies and resources to the prosecution of the war. 8,000 horse and about 250,000 foot were raised. They were reviewed and numbered in the country of the Edui, and their officers appointed. The Atrebatian, Comius, the two Eduans, Virodomarus and Epirodorix, and Vercassilvelanus, and Arvernian, and kinsmen of Vercinicorix, were entrusted with the command. Delegates from the various tribes were associated with them, in accordance with whose advice they were to conduct the campaign. All started for Elysia in high spirits and full of confidence, and there was not one of them who did not believe that the mere appearance of so vast a host would be irresistible, especially as the fighting would be on two fronts, the besieged sallying forth from the town, while without would be conspicuous those huge hosts of cavalry and infantry. Chapter 77 but the besieged in Elysia knew nothing of what was going on in the country of the Aedui. The day on which they had expected their countrymen to succor them was past, and their grain was all consumed. 
A council of war was therefore convened, and they considered what was to become of them. Various opinions were mooted. Some advised surrender, others a sortie while their strength held out. But Critognatus, an Arvenian of noble family and acknowledged influence, made a speech which, in view of its singular and atrocious cruelty, ought not, I think, to be passed over. I do not intend, he said, to notice the view of those who dignify the most abject slavery by the title of surrender, for I hold that they ought not to be counted as citizens or admitted to a council. I am only concerned with those who are in favor of a sortie, for, as you are all agreed, in their council is to be recognized the memory of our ancient valor. To be unable to bear privation for a short span, that I call weakness, not manly resolution. It is easier to find men who will affront death than men who will patiently endure suffering. And yet I would give my sanction to this view. So highly do I respect the authority of its advocates, if I saw no evil involved in it save the sacrifice of our own lives, but in forming our plans we must have regard to the whole of Gaul, for we have called upon the whole of Gaul to help us. If eighty thousand men fall on one field, what, think you, will be the feelings of our friends and kinsmen when they are constrained to fight almost on the very corpses of the slain? To save you, they have counted their personal danger as nothing. Do not, then, rob them of your aid. Do not, by your folly and rashness or lack of resolution, ruin the whole of Gaul and subject it to perpetual slavery. Can it be that, because they have not arrived punctually to the day, you doubt their good faith and resolution? What then? Do you suppose that the Romans are toiling day after day on those outer lines, simply to amuse themselves? If the messengers of your countrymen cannot reassure you because all ingress is barred, except Roman testimony that their coming is near, dread of that event keeps them busy upon their works night and day. What then is my counsel? I counsel you to do what our fathers did in their war with the Cimbri and Teutoni, a war in no way comparable to this. Forced into their strongholds and brought low, like us, by famine, they kept themselves alive by feeding upon the flesh of those whose age disqualified them for war, but they did not surrender to the enemy. And if we had no precedent for this, still, in the name of liberty, I would hold it a most glorious precedent to create and bequeath to posterity. For what resemblance was there between that war and this? The Cambri devastated Gaul and brought upon her grievous calamity, but they did at last leave our country and seek other lands. They did leave us our rights, our laws, our lands, our liberty. But the Romans, what aim, what purpose have they but this? For mere envy to settle in these lands and tribal territories of a people whose renown and warlike prowess they have come to know, and to fasten upon them the yoke of everlasting slavery? Never have they made war on any other principle. If you know not what is going on among distant peoples, look at the Gaul on your border. Reduced to a province, its rights and laws revolutionized, prostrate beneath the lictor's axe, it is cr crushed by perpetual slavery. Chapter 78 The votes were recorded. It was decided that those whose age or infirmity disqualified them from fighting should leave the town, the rest should try every expedient before having recourse to Critonatus' proposal, but that, if circumstances were too strong, and the reinforcements delayed, they should adopt it rather than stoop to accept terms of surrender or peace. The Mandubi, who had admitted them into the town, were compelled to leave with their wives and children. When they reached the lines, they earnestly entreated the Romans with tears to receive them as slaves, only give them something to eat. 
but caesar posted guards on the rampart and forbade them admission chapter seventy nine meanwhile commius and the other leaders who had been entrusted with the command reached elysia with their whole force and occupying a hill outside encamped not more than a mile from our entrenchments next day they moved their cavalry out of camp occupied the whole plain which as we have shown extends three miles in length and drawing back their infantry a little posted them on the high ground the town of elysia commanded a view over the plain descrying the reinforcements the besieged crowded together and congratulated each other and all were joyfully excited leading their forces to the front they took post before the town filled up the nearest trench with vaccines covered with earth and made ready for a sortie and for every hazard chapter eighty disposing his whole force on both lines of entrenchment so that every man might know his proper place and keep it ready for emergencies caesar ordered the cavalry to move out of camp and engage all the camps which crowned the surrounding heights commanded a view of the field and all the soldiers were intently awaiting the issue of the combat here and there among their the cavalry the gauls had scattered archers and active light-armed foot to support their comrades in case they gave way and withstand the charges of our cavalry a good many men were wounded by these troops whose attack they had not foreseen and left the field feeling sure that their countrymen were winning and observing that our men were being overpowered by numbers the beleaguered gauls as well as those who had come to rescue them cheered and yelled on every side to encourage their comrades as the fighting was going on in full view of every one and no gallant deed no cowardice could escape notice love of glory and fear of disgrace stimulated both sides to valor from noon till near sunset the fight went on and still the issue was doubtful at length the germans massed their squadrons at one point and charged and forced back the enemy and on their flight the archers were surrounded and slain the other divisions likewise falling back our men gave them no chance of rallying but pursued them right up to their encampment the besieged who had sallied forth from elysia well nigh despairing of success sadly retreated into the town chapter eighty one an interval of one day followed during which the gauls made a great quantity of fascines ladders and grappling hooks fixed to long poles at midnight they moved silently out of camp and advanced to the entrenchments in the plain suddenly they raised a shout to inform the besieged of their approach and began to throw their fascines to drive the romans from the rampart with slings arrows and stones and in every other way to press the attack simultaneously vercingetorix hearing the distant cry sounded the trumpet and led his men out of the town our troops moved up to the entrenchments in the places which had been severally allotted to them beforehand and drove back the gauls with slings throwing large stones and sharp stakes which they had laid at intervals on the rampart and with bullets the darkness made it impossible to see clearly and on both sides many were wounded while missiles were hurled in showers by the artillery two generals mark antony and gaius trebonius who had been charged with the defense of this part of the lines withdrew troops from the distant redoubts and reinforced our men at every point where they saw them overmatched chapter eighty two so long as the gauls kept at a distance from the entrenchments the number of their missiles gave them the advantage but when they came closer some trod unawares upon the spurs others tumbled into the pits and impaled themselves while others were transfixed by heavy pikes from the rampart and towers and perished 
everywhere they suffered heavy loss and at no point did they break the lines toward daybreak fearing that they might be attacked from the higher camps on their exposed flank and surrounded they fell back and rejoined their comrades the besieged lost much time in bringing out the implements which Vercingetorix had prepared for the sortie and in filling up the nearer trench and finding before they could approach the contravalation that their comrades had withdrawn they went back unsuccessful to the town chapter eighty three having been twice repulsed with heavy loss the gauls considered what was to be done they called in natives who were familiar with the ground and ascertained from them the position of the higher camps and the nature of their fortifications there was a hill on the north which had such a wide sweep that the romans had not been able to include it within the circumvallation and were obliged to make the camp there on a gentle slope which gave an assailant a slight advantage this camp was garrisoned by two legions under the command of two generals gaius anstitius reginus and caius caninius rebilus after making a reconnaissance the hostile leaders selected from the whole force sixty thousand men belonging to the tribes which had the highest reputation for valor secretly decided on their plan of operations and fixed the attack for noon vercassivellanus an arvernian one of the four generals in a relation of Vercingetorix, was placed in command of the force he left camp in the first watch towards daybreak he had almost finished his march and concealing himself behind the hill he ordered his soldiers to rest after the toil of the night towards noon he pushed on for the camp mentioned above and simultaneously the cavalry began to move towards the entrenchments in the plain while the rest of the host made a demonstration in front of their camp chapter eighty four descrying his countrymen from the citadel of elysia vercingetorix moved out of the town taking from the camp the long pikes sappers huts grappling hooks and other implements which he had prepared for the sortie fighting went on simultaneously at every point and the besieged tried every expedient concentrating their strength on the weakest points the roman forces being strung out over lines of vast extent found it hard to move to several points at once the shouts of the combatants in their rear had a serious effect in unnerving the men who saw that their own lives were staked upon the courage of others for men are generally disquieted most by the unseen chapter eighty five caesar found a good position from which he observed all the phases of the action and reinforced those who were in difficulties both sides saw that now was the moment for a supreme effort the gauls utterly despaired of safety unless they could break the lines the romans if they could but hold their ground looked forward to the end of all their toils the struggle was most severe at the entrenchments on the high ground against which as we have remarked for cassivellanus had been sent the unfavorable downward slope told heavily some of the assailants showered in missiles while others locked their shields above their heads and advanced to the assault and when they were tired fresh men took their places the entire force shot earth against the fortifications which at once enabled the gauls to ascend and bury the obstacles which the romans had hidden in the ground and now weapons and strength to use them were failing our men chapter eighty six on learning the state of affairs caesar sent labinus with six cohorts to rescue the hard-pressed garrison telling him in case he could not hold on to lead out the cohorts and charge but only as a forlorn hope 
visiting the other divisions in person he adjured them not to give in on that day he told them on that hour was staked the prize of all past combats the besieged abandoning the hope of forcing the formidable works in the plain took the implements which they had prepared and attempted to storm a deep ascent with a hail of missiles they drove off the men who defended the towers filled up the trenches with earth and fascines and with their grappling hooks tore down the rampart and breastworks chapter eighty seven caesar first sent the younger brutus with a number of cohorts and afterwards gaius fabius with others finally as the fighting grew fiercer he led a fresh detachment in person to the rescue having restored the battle and beaten off the enemy he hastened to the point to which he had dispatched labinus withdrawing four cohorts from the nearest redoubt and ordering part of the cavalry to follow him and part to ride round the outer lines and attack the enemy in the rear labinus finding that neither rampart nor trench could check the enemy's onslaught massed eleven cohorts which he was fortunately able to withdraw from the nearest piquets and sent messengers to let caesar know what he intended caesar hastened to take part in the action chapter eighty eight the enemy knew that he was coming from the color of his cloak which he generally wore in action to mark his identity and catching sight of the cohorts and troops of cavalry which he had ordered to follow him descending the incline which was plainly discernible from their commanding position began the attack both sides raised a cheer and the cheering was taken up along the rampart and the whole extent of the lines our men dropped their javelins and plied their swords suddenly the cavalry was seen on the enemy's rear the fresh cohorts came up the enemy turned tail and the cavalry charged the fugitives the carnage was great sedulius commander and chieftain of the Movicis, was slain vercassivellanus the arvernian was taken alive as he was trying to escape seventy-four standards were brought to caesar and few of that mighty host got safely back to camp descrying from the town the slaughter and the rout of their countrymen the besieged in despair recalled their troops from the entrenchments hearing this the gauls in camp forthwith fled and if the soldiers had not been tired out by frequent supporting movements and by the whole day's toil the enemy's entire host might have been annihilated the cavalry were dispatched about midnight and hung about upon the rear guard a large number were captured and slain the rest escaped and went off to their respective tribes chapter eighty nine next day vercingetorix called a council he explained that he had undertaken the war not for private ends but in the cause of national freedom and since they must needs bow to fortune he would submit to whichever alternative they preferred either to appease the romans by putting him to death or to surrender him alive envoys were sent to refer the question to caesar he ordered the arms to be surrendered and the leaders brought out the officers were conducted to the entrenchment in front of his camp where he was seated vercingetorix surrendered and the arms were grounded caesar allotted one prisoner by way of prize to every man in the army making an exception in favor of the Adui and Arverni, as he hoped by restoring them to win back the two tribes. Chapter 90 These arrangements completed, he started for the country of the Adui, and received the submission of the tribe. Thither the Arverni sent envoys, promising to obey his orders, and he ordered them to furnish a large number of hostages. The legions were sent into winter quarters, and about twenty thousand prisoners restored to the Adui and Arverni. He directed Titus Labinus to march with two legions and a detachment of cavalry into the country of the Sequani, 
placing Marcus Sempronius Rutilus under his command, stationed Gaius Fabius and Lucius Minucius Basilus with two legions in the country of the Remi, to protect them from injury at the hands of their neighbors the Bellavaci, dispatched Gaius and Stitius Reginus into the country of the Ambivaretti, Titus Sextius into that of the Rituriges, and Gaius Cananius Rebilus into that of the Rutini, each in command of a legion, and quartered Quintus Tullius Cicero and Publius Suplicius in the country of the Dewey at Cabillo and Metisco on the Saone, to collect grain. He decided to winter himself at Bibracte. When the results of the campaign were made known by his dispatches, a thanksgiving service of twenty days was held at Rome. End of chapter 90 End of Commentaries on the Gallic War by Julius Caesar Translated by Thomas Rice Holmes